God is our firm foundation. The faith that we share in Christ is a solid foundation on which we can build our lives. We can trust God. We can trust him with everything. We can trust God with other people. We can trust God with everything that concerns us. And we can trust God to do what's right in every situation for every person. Because he's just that kind of a God. A righteous God. A good God who we can trust. How great is it to know that you and I, as followers of Christ, and for all who will call on his name, that we can build our lives on him and we will not be shaken. What a tremendous truth. What a tremendous blessing and honor it is to know that we have that kind of a God who loves us as much as he does. And we can trust God with the whosoevers, as we talked about last week in Romans chapter 9, that God has made the call to all mankind, to young and old, to Jew and Gentile, to man and woman, to every race, to every age, to every demographic, to every tribe, and to every nation. God has made the call for, for one and all to repent and to find their way into God's kingdom by simply believing and calling on his name. And that's what I want to talk to you about today here in our series and on Romans as we go into chapter 10, that it's about making the call after you have believed in the gospel that God has made available to you and to me and to all. When we look here at verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul starts out by saying, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's speaking of his Jewish kinsmen, and he's speaking also of Gentiles, for Paul has, has spared no expense sharing his heart that he himself would give up his own salvation if he could, so that others might enjoy the salvation that comes in God. And the wonderful thing is, is that Paul or no one else has to give up that salvation, for God's salvation is sufficient for all who would call on his name. And that's you, and that's me. And Paul says, my heart's prayer is for them that they would all be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. People want to be in good standing with God, don't they? Do you want to be in good standing with God? If you have a conversation with anyone in the general public and say, hey, are you going to heaven? They'll likely say yes. And if you ask them why, they'll say, because I'm a good person. You know, God and I are in, in good standing. You know, God's a God that, you know, he's fair and he's loving and he's just. And I've done more good than I've done bad. I haven't killed anybody. And, and so the, the situation will be explained that they believe they are in right standing with God. And, and they're good to go. And that's pretty much where everyone in the general public lands. How often do you run into someone who says, I want God to hate me? Sure, there are a few who may be so jaded in their opinion of God that they would say, I want God to hate me, and I don't want to be in good standing with God. But by and large, the general opinion of all people that walk this earth is they want to be in good standing. It's no different back in the Old Testament times. The Jews and all of mankind wanted to be in good standing with God. 
most of society throughout the history of mankind has all believed in God, has all believed in some form of the afterlife, whether it's Native Americans with their burial rituals or tribal uh, people in Africa, Australia, the, the Asian Far Eastern cultures. They all have these uh, burial ceremonies as part of their religions and their tribal uh, rituals where they believe in an afterlife. Almost every person who's ever walked this earth believes there's a God and there's something beyond the grave. And everyone wants to believe that they're okay. And everyone's working hard, some very intentionally. Some are, are being very intentional throughout their, their daily lives to make sure that they do enough good things that they're in right standing with God. Others assume that by default I will have done more good things than bad because I basically am a good person, and the assumption is that they will be in right standing with God. Back in the Old Testament times, uh, Paul's, Paul, Paul is referring to them in verses 2 uh, and 3, talking about how they had this zeal for God, this desire to be right with God, this, this longing to do what was right and to do enough, and they had the law of Moses, and they would do the law of Moses. All 613 Levitical commands uh, were obeyed by many, many Jewish people, thinking, if I can just make sure I do all of these, and anytime I mess up, if I take a sacrifice to the altar, then I can have that sin forgiven, and on the Day of Atonement, I'll make sure that I get everything wiped out, and they would follow to the letter of the law these things. They had this zeal for God, but it says, not according to knowledge. They didn't understand the righteousness of God, even by human comparison. We could say it's way up here unattainable, but that doesn't even begin to say it. To, to draw any sort of a comparison with, you know, leap a, single, leap a tall building in a single bound. Yeah, we let Superman do it, but no human could. Well, someone would probably say, well, I could devise a way with springs and anti-gravity machines, and I could figure it out. Well, you can't figure it out. God's righteousness can't be figured out. We can't ever be good enough. No matter how much we put our mind to it, the building's always going to be too, too tall to jump. The gap's going to be too far to get across. Whatever it is that we would try to compare it to is just going to fall short. For the righteousness of God is far beyond anything we could ever imagine, much less try to attain. The Jewish people were ignorant of that, ignorant of the righteousness of God but they were seeking to establish their own, seeking to find a way to figure it out how they could be somehow righteous with God. What they didn't know is that righteousness, when it comes to God, is not in us attaining it, but it's in our receiving it from him. And what a beautiful truth in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the righteousness. He became sin for us, it says in 1 Corinthians, so that he might become the righteousness of God. Christ became the righteousness. And so if we are going to attain, get, have for ourselves a righteousness that puts us in right standing with God so that we can have the hope of eternity, it's not a matter of doing enough right things ourselves to be righteous enough. It's a matter of accepting into our lives the righteousness of Christ and letting him become part and parcel of what we are, letting him become our Lord, and then it is our possession of him as the righteousness of God that gives us that ability to, stay, to say, I stand before God right with him. 
before Christ came, before the name of Christ could be announced, the Old Testament law existed as a, a measure of the faith in God. We saw earlier in Romans that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Yes, Abraham obeyed what law he had, but he didn't even have the law of Moses. He just believed God, took him at his word. And because he believed God, he did what God said. Even when, it, and God said, even when he said, Abraham, take your promised son and sacrifice him. Abraham said, okay, I believe you, God. I don't understand it, but I believe you. Now, thankfully, God supplied a ram to take the place of Isaac. He didn't have to sacrifice his son. But Abraham believed God that much that whatever God said, he would do. And similarly, a few hundred years later, when Moses came along and the law of Moses was given on Mount Sinai to Moses from God and distributed to the people, now there was a new law, a new expectation, a new standard that went out to the Israelite people. And they had the opportunity to say, just as Abraham did, okay, God, whatever you say, I believe. And if you say I need to do these things so that you can live among us and dwell and tabernacle with us, if we do these things and you will do it, then we believe you. God, you said, okay, therefore I will. God, you want, okay, I believe, therefore I will. God, you mean it when you say that? Well, then I believe it, therefore I will obey. This was the call of the Old Testament believers. They didn't believe in Christ as Messiah. They didn't know him. They hadn't seen him. He hadn't come to earth yet. But they could look at God in heaven, who they knew, and they could hear what he said, and they could believe it, and upon believing it, they could then apply it to their lives and live it out in faith, knowing that, okay, this is what God said, so this is what we'll do, so he can dwell among us, and we will be in right standing with him. So what has God asked you to do? Thankfully for you and me, the 613 Levitical commandments are gone which means you and I can enjoy a ham on Easter. We can enjoy bacon with our eggs, not to mention the other 612 things that we get to not worry so much about. Many of those laws are good things we still do, like don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, you know, honor your father and mother. A lot of those laws transferred over specifically. Christ reiterated them in the New Testament. But some of the, the cleanliness codes for unclean animals and and different stipulations on worship at the altar and those sorts of things were done away with for Christ became uh, the sacrificial lamb that was slain once and for all for you and me. So a lot of those laws disappeared. Christ fulfilled them. And if we invest, invite Christ into our lives, then we invite the righteousness of God that comes with Christ and we don't have to worry about all those laws of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and we simply get to enjoy a relationship with God. But in the Old Testament, this law of Moses became what the people did. And unfortunately, they got so hung up on the religious practices that they began to believe, and this is what Christ confronted when he came and talked to the Pharisees. When Christ came, he confronted them and said, look, you've taken the laws and made the laws your God, as if you can do all these laws and somehow attain righteousness for yourself. It's wrong. You look to God for righteousness, and because you believe in what he says, you now do these things. You don't do these things in order to gain the righteousness, but the Pharisees had it backwards, and they were using it to oppress the people, which is ungodly at best. 
evil and demonic at worst. And that's what Christ called them, a brood of vipers, children of their father, the devil. But they got hung up on this. If you look in Romans 10, verse 5, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What is going on here? Why would people want to ascend to heaven or descend to hell to somehow bring Christ? As I prayed about this and said, Lord, what, are you, what, is a, what is the message that our church needs to hear out of this? Because when I read it, I read these quotes, and I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And I believe that God would have us look at it this way. Do not say who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. In other words, can I be good enough that Christ would pay enough attention to me that he would come to earth for me? You know, Christ came at, at Christmas time, we celebrate, the incarnation of God, the word made flesh to dwell among us. And we might think, oh, he only did that for the people that were good enough. And so maybe if I'm good enough, maybe, maybe it's almost as if I went to heaven and said, okay, Christ, I've been good enough. Will, will your coming to earth be for me now? Because I've been good enough, Jesus. Or on the contrary, maybe it's down to hell that we need to go for Christ came and died and rose again and, and there was a resurrection that happened. And maybe if I'm good enough, then maybe it's as if, maybe it's as if maybe I was on his mind. If I can be a good enough person, then maybe when he rose from the dead, maybe it was for me. And so I'm going to be good enough to earn him coming down. I'm going to be good enough to raise him from the dead on my behalf. Because if I'm not good enough, then, then maybe he only came down for the people that are good enough. Or if I'm not good enough, maybe he only rose from the dead for those who are good enough. But the law according to faith does not say that. The law according to faith, the righteousness that comes from faith, says Christ came down because he loved us. Because he knew we weren't good enough. Christ rose from the dead because he loved us and wanted to show us power and wanted his, himself to be the firstborn among the resurrection. That we also would have a resurrection reality to our lives, a newness to life that begins at salvation and continues on into eternity in heaven someday. And Christ initiated that. We saw it in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ came down, Christ died, Christ rose. While we were sinners, I do not earn the right for him to come down. I do not earn him rising from the dead for me. I don't earn that. I don't, by my good works, make my way into heaven to say, okay, Lord, I'm now good enough that your, your incarnation is, is for me. I don't descend into hell and say, okay, Lord, I've been good enough. Will you rise for me now? No, he did it by his own initiative, saying, I will go, I will die, I will rise from the dead, and they will be my people. So if I don't have to earn this, if I can't ascend into heaven to beg for God to forgive me, if I can't descend to hell to beg Christ to rise for me, then what do I do? I realize what Paul said a few verses earlier, that Christ is the righteousness. And I don't need to attain to righteousness to get 
him. I go to him because he is the righteousness. I go to him as I am. I go to him as the sinful person I am. And I say, Christ, I'm not worthy, but you have loved me anyway. And by the confession of that, I confess Christ as Lord. I confess him as the righteousness of God. And when I confess Christ coming out of my mouth, from my heart, for the scriptures say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's a belief that's down here. When I truly believe that, then I can make that call on Jesus to be my Savior. Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? In contrast to what was just said in the verses before, that it doesn't say to ascend to heaven and descend to hell to try to get Christ to, to somehow apply his sacrifice to you. It doesn't say that, but what it does say is the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Christ was the word, is the word, always was the word, always will be the word. He's the word made flesh in John chapter 1. He's the word that we need to proclaim from our mouths. This word that comes out, this Jesus, you are my Lord. This Jesus, you are the Messiah. God, I do believe you. I believe what you said. Therefore, I'm calling upon you, confessing Christ as Lord. Because verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Can you do enough good to get him to come down here? Can you do enough good to get him to die and rise again for you? I can't, and you can't either. But what I can do is confess him as Lord. I can confess that he is the righteousness. I can confess that I believe that Christ took my place. I can confess the things that have been so outlined already throughout the book of Romans um, that all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God, and I'm one of them. I can confess that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I can confess that. I can confess that God's love for me was demonstrated when Christ came down and, and gave his life for me. I can confess that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I can confess that I have peace with God. I can confess these things. And if I do, if I confess with my mouth that this is the belief of my heart, that God raised Christ from the dead for my benefit, then I will be saved. If you confess, you're letting what is true in your heart come out of your mouth, come out of your actions. Just as in the Old Testament, those who believed God did certain things. God, you said, therefore I will. God, you want, therefore I will. God, you said you mean this? Okay, I believe you and I will. Just as the Old Testament believers lived that way, you and I have the opportunity today to live that way. Jesus, you said, therefore I will. Jesus, you said, stop, therefore I will stop. Jesus said, I want you dot, dot, dot. Okay, if that's what you want, God, then that's what I will be. Jesus, you said you wanted to be Lord. You said you have to be Lord. Okay, God, I will let you be Lord of my life. What you say I will do, what you say stop, I will stop, and what you promise, I will believe. When we get to the point 
where we believe that in our hearts, it becomes almost automatic that we would call out on him and confess him. How could you in your heart believe that you're a sinner destined for hell? How could you in your heart believe that Christ has made the way for you to, to, to not go to hell? How could you believe deep in your heart that forgiveness was offered freely at the cross and all you had to do was cry out for it and you would escape hell and you would be promised heaven and you would have Jesus as your friend both for now and forever? How could you truly believe that in your heart and say, no? I believe many people have heard this message and they've heard it over and over again. Their mother, their father, their grandma, their sister, their brother, someone has been telling them this over and over again. You've heard it from a friend. You've heard it from a cousin. You've heard it from somebody. And while you think it's all nice and well for that person who told you, that individual doesn't truly believe it yet. And that's what keeps them from calling on the name of the Lord. You see, I could talk to any person and say, here, read this paper. And they could read words that say, Jesus died for my sins. They could say it with their mouth. But if they don't believe it in their heart, it's worthless. Christ's desire, God's desire, is that we would believe. What is God's will? According to the Gospels, God's will is that all men would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's God's will, that we would believe. For when we believe the things of God, it will result in us calling upon his name. It will result on us obeying what he says. It will result in us further believing, not just what we believe now and have now, but it will cause us to believe even more for the promises that he has offered to us. What are those promises? Verse 11 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you want to be put to shame? Shame is not anything any of us wants. We don't want to invest our time in something and find out it was worthless. How many of you want to launch a business venture that you know will fail and you'll become the laughing stock of all those who said, you better not, it'll fail? You don't want people coming to you saying, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. Well, the beauty of the gospel is that there is no possibility of shame. This will not fail. And anyone who would come try to shame you for being a follower of Christ, they themselves will find out they, in the end, are shamed. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Bestowing his riches what are the riches of God? We've already talked about the righteousness of God being so far beyond anything we could ever compare it to here on earth. The riches of God. It's like saying, you know, a million dollars is held in a drop of water. Here's a million dollars. And then here comes Niagara Falls. That's God's riches. I mean, we can try to put comparisons on it, but those even fall short. The Lord is Lord of all, and he bestows his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe, then you will call. I don't know how a person could truly believe the things of the scripture and not call. The reason many are not calling on the name of the Lord is because they don't truly believe it. They think, well, I'm good enough. I don't know. There seems to be a lot to that whole church thing. 
you know, you got to go every Sunday and you got to, you know, give your money and you got to serve and you got to help and you got to, you know, not do all these fun things that I get to do now. And, you know, I, I don't know about the whole church thing. First of all, gathering every Sunday for church, giving money and having to serve is not what Jesus died for. Jesus died for you, for you to enter a relationship with him for you to have the opportunity to love the King of kings and Lord of lords who wants to bestow his riches on all who call on him, the riches of joy, the riches, riches of unexplained peace, the riches of, of a purpose and an understanding of what life is, the riches of being able to endure trials knowing that they are only helping complete you and make you more into the image of Jesus Christ. These are the promises of God. This is what Christianity is. And yes, we get to gather. We get to get together on a weekly basis, on evenings during the week, on Saturday mornings, on whenever it is that, that fellowship happens between believers in the kingdom of God. And not just within this church, but in homes and with friends that go to other churches. And we experience the fellowship of believers. And yes, we get to give to God. We get to be generous and see that, that we're investing, if it's 10%, you're investing 10% of your income into the kingdom of God, that great and mighty things would be accomplished by God with your resources, like the boy who gave his loaves and his fishes. Who would, who would, who would want to be that boy giving up his lunch that day? Not me. I don't want to give up my lunch. But what happened with that boy's lunch? That boy got to see his gift feed the multitudes. Do I want to part with a tithe with a 10% of my income? Could I spend it on other things for myself? Absolutely. But what if I give that and it ends up feeding the masses? What if it ends up blessing multiple people, dozens of people, hundreds of people maybe? What if? You see, Christianity is first and foremost about entering a relationship with Jesus Christ to find the joy and peace and happiness and purpose and, and the endurance that you need to get through this life with a smile on your face so that you can stand before God someday, walk into his eternal kingdom, and be welcomed home into paradise forever. And then along the way, we get to gather with like-minded people. We get to invest into the kingdom and see our, our, our gifts grow and flourish for the purpose of God. We get to do these things. It's not that we have to. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone becomes a child of the King of Kings who bestows his riches on all who call on him. And none of us will be put to shame if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's bring this to a close today as we look at the last two verses here. Verses 14 and 15. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's a sequence of events here. And it's really backwards in the order that it's given. For first, an individual must be sent. Upon being sent, they become a preacher of the gospel, a speaker of the truth of God, 
I'm not talking about preachers and churches that stand up and give sermons. I'm talking about every follower of Christ who's been sent to speak the gospel, to tell your story, to share what God has done for you, to share what God has made possible for all. So everyone who's called on the name of the Lord is a sent individual who has the opportunity to preach the good news so that there might be those who hear the gospel. And upon hearing, that individual has a chance to either believe it or not believe it. And at the point on which they believe it is when that call goes out. The call is what's important. The confessing Jesus is Lord. The crying out to God, acknowledging that you do believe. The call is a call of the belief in the thing that was heard because someone preached, because someone was sent. And Paul was sent. Paul was sent, and his feet were beautiful, the scriptures say, that those who bring good news have beautiful feet. Were Paul's feet beautiful? Did he get a pedicure every two weeks? Did he have a nice pedicure on his toes? You know, a no chip, you know, a son won't bake this off kind of pedicure? Were they beautiful that way? No. His feet were probably anything but beautiful in that way. His feet were probably calloused and dirty and chipped and broken. And who knows what his feet may have looked like. For he walked mile after mile after mile, suffering persecution, being detoured by the Holy Spirit to go to different cities when he wanted to go somewhere else, being stoned in certain cities, and then getting up and walking right back in, only to be thrown out again, thrown in prison, shipwrecked, spending a night in sea, floating on a piece of shipwreck wood. And then what? Wake up the next morning and he gets to do it all again. This is what Paul went through. His feet would have been bloodied and calloused, but the gospel that he brought made his feet beautiful. Paul did all that he could. Danger, persecution, trials, detours, hard work, shipwrecks, repeat. Danger, persecution, trials, detours, hard work, bit by a snake, repeat. What Paul went through to spread the gospel, how beautiful his feet were. Also that he could be obedient to being sent to being called to preach so that people could hear. And in that sequence of events of being sent and preaching and giving people an opportunity to hear, at the end of giving people the opportunity to hear, his responsibility was fulfilled. His feet were beautiful. Then the responsibility shifts to the hearer. Will they believe? Will you believe? I have never been given the opportunity to suffer the way Paul did. Many Christians, most Christians won't ever get to that point. I do what I can through social media, through face-to-face interactions with neighbors and friends, here at this church, through the web, through our, our video feed. I, I do what I can. And the scripture says that, that my feet become beautiful as I do that. Are my feet as beautiful as Paul's? I don't know how God grades that. I don't think they are. How beautiful are your feet? I know there are many beautiful sets of feet in this church because you are sent, you are preaching and giving people the opportunity to hear. And God bless you for that. And keep going because there's someone out there that needs to have the opportunity to hear the good news. And when they hear it, they will then have the opportunity to respond, to believe. So it's your turn. Your turn to either keep going and make your feet more and more beautiful every day. Or it's your turn to finally believe today and call in the name of the Lord. Will you call? Will you make the call today to Jesus Christ for forgiveness? You say, well, what do I do? 
Well, I believe that if you believe what's been said, that you already know about 99% of what you need to do. The only thing you need from me is a little bit of encouragement to cry out to God and say, God, I don't have a righteousness that I can earn. I have sinned. This gospel that's been outlined throughout the book of Romans, clearly explained, adequately declared. Paul has spared no expense to preach what the gospel is throughout the book of Romans to this point. Do you believe that? If you believe it, then you simply take that knowledge to God. You take that belief that's in here. And right now, you drop to your knees if you want to. Lift your hands if you feel you want to. Fall flat on your face. Weep and cry and be so glad for what God has done that he has offered to set you free. And you cry out to God and you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I cannot attain to a righteousness on my own. But I believe what your Bible says. I believe what I hear this man is saying. I believe the message that someone told me a long time ago, and I never took the time to really consider it, but today I believe it. And Jesus, I need you to forgive my sins. Because you came from heaven and you rose from the dead, not because I was worthy of it, but because you loved me. And because you gave yourself for me, because you took my place on the cross, I can be forgiven. That's your call today. If you truly believe it, and if you've already called on the name of the Lord because you've been believing for a while now, praise God. Now go make your feet beautiful by sharing it with someone else. If you've never made that call, if you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, don't let another day slip by. We know from Romans chapter 9 that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and not that he never could have returned, but he got to a place where it would have been so difficult for his heart to receive this message. If you hear this message today, do not harden your heart, but let the soft heart that you have right now, let it receive the gospel. Let your heart that is open today to this truth be changed, and let this be the beginning of a brand new life, a life that you live for God. A life that you spend finding out how fun, how joyous, how peaceful, how comforting, how purposeful life can be. Because you've offered your heart to him. As we close this morning, I just want to encourage you. If you are confident in this decision that you've already made it, Go make your feet beautiful. If you have questions, there's a link in the description. You can click on that link. It'll send me a note that you have questions. It'll send me a note that you want a follow-up phone call. Just click the link, punch in your contact information, and I'll reach out to you. Make sure that you know that you are part of the family of God, that you have a Father in heaven who lovingly bestows his riches on all who call on his name. If you want that to be you today, if the Holy Spirit is, is sending this message into your heart today, reach out. Let us know. Let somebody know. Call someone you trust and get your questions answered today 
so that you can become confident in your relationship with Jesus Christ.